I bring you greetings of joy in Christ's name this evening. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here, and I don't think you would either. I would like to express my gratefulness for many of you coming up and introducing yourselves. I have a lot of new faces here I've not met. Good may able to make for a relationally challenged guy, been able to make a few connections, and I've appreciated that. I know many of you know my son and his wife. Some have taught Bible school even as recently this last winter with him. I don't know why I feel impressed to say this, but I, you may find it hard to believe, but I went to public high school, and in public speaking, I nearly came to tears to be in front of 30 students and give a five-minute talk. And that's not because Bob Stauffer picked himself up by his own bootstraps, but anything the Lord brings to this poor vessel is because he empowered it. I don't know how many of you recognize the name Gypsy Smith. Just a few. I think I have time to share just a bit about him. I felt impressed to earlier this evening to D.L. Moody and Iris Sankey were in England. They went out to visit a gypsy camp one day, one Sunday afternoon. And a bunch of gypsy boys gathered around the front of the buggy. And Ira, I believe, was put his hand out upon the one young lad and said, God, make you a minister of the gospel or some kind of blessing he pronounced to that boy. He had no way of knowing that boy's mother had died at a young age. The father was a fiddle player in a tavern, ungodly man, who promised his dying wife that he would try to be a good father. And so the gypsy said many nights after mother died, we'd be in our wagon and we'd look out and dad was sitting by the campfire. They said his head was in his hands, his, he was shaking, he was in tears falling like raindrops on a mountain stream. And he was saying, God, I don't know how to be a good daddy. You ever get a chance to read his autobiography? I, don't, I can't take the time to explain all of that, but this young lad, his name was Rodney, he became known as Gypsy Smith. He saw his father Cornelius, his uncles Woodlock and Bartholomew come to the Lord within about a week. And you couldn't shut those men up the rest of their life, what Jesus had done for them. Gypsy too came to know the Lord, became a preacher. He doesn't come out quite doctrinally like we do in, in non-resistance. But he had a very simple homespun way of looking at nature and seeing what God has done and became widely used over several continents as a, as a missionary, preacher, speaker, made a number of trips to the United States. On his last trip here, and I don't know, was this in the 20s or 30s? I don't have the time frame fixed in my mind. But he went to preach one of the first places he had preached on his first tour over here. And an old man came up to him afterwards and said, Gypsy, I was here the first night on your first trip to America. And tonight you were just as still as excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life as you were back then. How do you explain that all these decades later? And Gypsy said, I've never lost the wonder of it all. I hope that's in your heart as it is mine. And... I think right now, too, of one other man, 
Paul Miller from Kansas. He was principal of Poplar Hill School when I first went there. I don't know if we got in the subject of public speaking and my trepidation of that. And he said something that has helped me. Maybe it'll help some young man here. But he said, when you get up front to speak, if you believe God has given you a message, that takes most of the fear away of speaking. And I believe God has given a message tonight. I seek your prayers. I thank you for your prayers as we look at the joy of submission. The title of this message is exactly immediately at odds with the human spirit, is it not? The joy of submission. Usually submission conjures up a negative reaction. For to submit means to subordinate my will to that of another. And there's not a person in this room who had to be taught to seek your own way or your own will. That came with being a human being. I've never been a girl, but I think they faced the same thing we boys did. We naturally want our own way. And learning to submit is a process. Some learn it earlier than others. First Peter 2, 11 to 16, I'd like to read two passages here. God's word has much to say about submission. I'd like to read this and then move on. One Peter 2, verse, starting at verse 11. Peter writes, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation, that means your manner of life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. You and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. If we do that with a good conscience in the context of we ought to be God rather than man, where that comes in conflict, your testimony is going to shout loudly in this world today. You ban uh, have used a term here that I Self, what was the self-assertion? Self-assertion. Self-assertion. I do get my mix all talked up sometimes. Uh, I would have identified the generation we live in as a, a, a generation of self-love. There's so much shouts of self-love, me, me, me. And when you and I can submit even to the speed limits, the game laws, and things like that from a cheerful heart, because we're serving the Lord God, that's going to speak loudly as it does in Virginia, as in Minnesota. First Peter 5, 1 to 6. The elders which are among you, I exhort, and who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. 
For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In verse 5, the word submit and the word and the be subject are the same Greek word. And we read with clarity that the younger are to submit to the elder. We read with equal clarity that all are to be subject one to another. So these two groups are prefaced with a third group. The likewise at the beginning of verse 5 refers to the elders, the leader to the church. And they are to lead by God's direction in such and such a way. And they are not to lead the church in some other ways. So Peter is first of all admonishing the church leaders to be in submission to the will of God and to lead within stated parameters. Now perhaps you're thinking, Brother Bob, we know the scriptures about submission very well. And there are other passages that talk about submitting. But what does that have to do with the joy of submitting? After all, when I really want to do what the commandment or the ordinance enjoins, then there's no great sacrifice to my will, is there? If I really want to do it. But joy? Come on, that sounds almost beyond the pale. One fall I was moderating a youth rally and sometimes 40 to 70 youth would come into our little country church up there. Most came with good attitudes. They were cooperative and, and joined in, willing to work together. The church we were at was a rather small church. It was well adequate for our local congregation. But when 40 or 70 youth come in, we were packed in like sardines, minus the oil. And uh, the, the young people were the, were the feature or the guest people, and so we reserved the front benches for them. Most who had come there before knew the ropes. Some who came for the first time needed a little bit of encouragement. And on this particular evening, there were two young men came in and they sat way in the back, where you two brothers are sitting there, on the back bench against the library wall. And uh, they would not respond to repeated invitations to move to the front. Now, I don't know how you men would have handled that. I don't know that I handled in the best way. I admit that. But finally, I said, uh, I said, I, I think we will just wait to begin the service until you join the rest of the youth up here. And after half a minute or so, the one fellow got up and then the other one and came front. After closing, I made a point to speak to the two young men, thanking them for coming front. And the one immediately said, Bob, he said, I'm sorry for being so stubborn. I knew what was expected of us. And I'm sorry for being so stubborn. Incidentally, that man went on, he's happily married, has several children of a couple hours north of us, godly home, praise the Lord. The other man said, I don't like to be told what to do. And that has been the manner of life to this day. Failed marriage, several children out of wedlock, a life of wreck. That is a those are the kind of things that stand out to me, and when I get inspired to write, it's when I see something in everyday life that speaks to the truth of Scripture. The Bible says the way of a transgressor is hard. You talk to a man in the jail, they will nod their heads. Even if they're not a Christian, the way of a transgressor is hard. This man ended up where he's at now because I don't like to be told what to do. He was not to be he would not submit.
willingly. Know with me that he did submit to the request, did he not? But joy? Uh Uh-uh. Long, long way. I'm sure we can all identify times when we were compelled to, let's say, sit down, and we sat down, but inside we were still standing up. Anybody beside me know what that's about? Well, even some women. God bless you for being honest. I lost my plate in my notes. I remember an answer my parents gave sometimes when we would say, do I have to? I'm sure some of us have uttered those words and they would say, you don't have to if you want to. That was one way of conveying a higher goal than simply obeying them and what they were asking of us. Sure, we require our children to learn to share their toys with their siblings. We didn't allow them to get away as far as we could tell with telling a lie. There were consequences for telling a lie. And when they have done something injurious to someone else, we want them to say, I'm sorry. I think my children's parents uh, could have learned younger and even better how to go about that. Because, you know, it's the right thing to say, I'm sorry. It's a whole different ball game to get them to say, I'm sorry, because they are truly sorry. We can say the right words without meaning it. And so when that happens and every bit of body language is, I'm sorry, then there is no joy. There is never any kind of joy in that kind of submission. I didn't ask the uh, committee what they had in mind about this lesson. I'm not sure if I'm exactly scratching where it itches, but submission is a is a thing when we do it from a godly heart in a godly manner, it does bring a joy, and we'll get to that in a bit. But parents teach your children the joy of submission. There is something that comes into the heart, whether it's a young or an old person. When we yield, submit my will to God and his authority that God has placed over me, I don't want to steal my thunder for a couple minutes from now, but it's, There is such a joy that comes into your being when you know you're cooperating with God. During a baptismal instruction class, we were using Christian Life Publications basic Bible studies. One of the 20 lessons was on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The students had done their homework. We studied the passage and the points given. And near the end of the class, I had a prompting. I believe it was of the Holy Spirit. So I asked, When have you heard the Holy Spirit speaking to you? I'm going to step aside from the account here just for a a little bit. I've never had the courage to do this. I don't know what the response would be, but if I ask you tonight, brothers and sisters, when in the last week have you heard the Holy Spirit speaking to you? I wonder how many answers we would get. Anyway, I asked the class that, and it was quiet for a minute or two. Now, in the Native American cultures in Canada, silence is fine. We white people, silence gets pretty heavy after 20 or 30 seconds. And uh, after a while, one of the the young people spoke up and said that, well, when I was convicted of being a sinner and needed the Lord in my heart, I think that was the Holy Spirit. Would you agree that was the work of the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible says no man can come to God except the Spirit draw him. Great. 
Who else? They went another about two minutes. And someone said, well, I believe the desire to be baptized, to follow the Lord in Christian baptism, I believe that was of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I, I would concur with that as well. Very good. What else? And then it was a long period of silence. That conversation in instruction class taught me that we can study an excellent resource and we can learn a lot of things from our eyebrows up of good knowledge, right knowledge, but that doesn't automatically convert into shoe leather. And so I felt prompted to use the rest of that class to explain in our, my own language what is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to give you those points this evening because I don't care how young or how old you are, we all face these things and I think we all can become calloused to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I explained to them that when we read the Word of God, God's Spirit helps us understand what that Word is saying. And just as a bit of an aside here, you know, I've done this many times, I'm reading and I'm not embarrassed to say, God, I don't know what that verse means. Would you help me to understand it? That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take his word and make it part of our very being, our very psyche. How he reminds us of Bible verses and principles that apply. He warns us with a check in our spirit. That's the best way that I know how to describe it when I'm contemplating a choice that it may be simply unwise or it may be a sinful choice. And I'm embarrassed to say that I was nearly 50 years old before I could put into words what that was. And I, I describe it myself as like a restless feeling. Suddenly there was no peace there when I was, when I was contemplating a decision that there may have been nothing wrong in the decision of itself, but it was not God's will to pursue that. Or it may have been where I was thinking wrong thoughts or thinking vengeful thoughts or something like that. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you would describe it, but teach your children when God has taught you, what is that? For me, it was a restlessness. I finally recognized that by 50, that that's God's spirit within me saying, Bob, something's, you're not focused right, or you're not heading the right direction. He prompts us to do this or to say that in a moment. I think this story comes out in Companions in July, so maybe I can share it. Something happened last fall that I thought, Bob, have you had your head on screwed on straight? We were in market up at Black Duck with our jam, maple syrup, and honey. From here to the nursery room, people were parking their cars, going in to get sandwiches or minnows or whatever, pumping gas over there. And this lady came out of the store and she stood by her car and just stared for a minute or two over at our stand. I thought, this is strange. People don't do that. And uh, a bit later, she walked around her car and reached in and got a cigarette and smoked her cigarette. And then she went back and stood on the other side of the car and she just stood there looking at us and looking at us. And, and I said, you're welcome to quote and see what we have here. And she just stood there and looked for another minute or two. And finally, she walked over and she picked up a jar of jam and a bottle of honey. And the first words out of her mouth were, you can pray that I would quit smoking. And my wife said, we will do that. What is your name? Her name is Rita. 
If you think about Rita, God brings her mind, pray for Rita. We've had no contact since. Another customer came and I helped that customer and that person left, her husband had joined her in the meantime and she said, when I gave my heart to the Lord umpteen years ago, I don't know how many she said anymore, she said I quit smoking just like that. It was gone. But she said last winter I, I went through some kind of operation, tremendous pain and discomfort, and she was in the presence of her brother one day when he lit up a cigarette. And it just filled her with this urging. She said, can I have one drag in that? And she said, now I'm hooked again. And I just bought a pack of cigarettes in the store. And I joined my wife in affirming that we will pray for you, Rita. And then something came into my mind. I think it was of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I said to her, I said, I may be out of bounds in saying this, but may I ask you how much you spent for that pack of cigarettes? She said, $12. I think it was a pretty expensive pack. I'm not sure. But I said, I have an offer to make to you. Any pint of honey in our stand, we had four different kinds there. Any pint of honey in our stand, we sell for $12. If you will give me that pack of cigarettes to destroy, you may have a honey jar of honey. And she immediately accepted that and asked her husband to go get the cigarettes. See, he didn't know about this either. He, she had done that. And where are they? Well, they're in the console of the car. So he went and got them and he handed them to me. She said, thank you very much. And as she turned to leave, I said, if we meet again, I'll probably have a question for you. She said, your name's on here. I know how to get a hold of you. So my wife, I took them home and put them in the cook stove, burned them. My wife took the pack off, uh, the front label off, and that's tacked up in the pole underneath our telephone. Reminder to pray for Rita. I don't know if we'll know in this life what that produced, but I believe that was the Holy Spirit. And I wish I was more tuned in to what God wants to do. You know, that seemed really, Bob, you're, you're, this is really weird. God will never ask, his Holy Spirit will never prompt us to do something that's not in agreement with the word of God. But I believe that was an agreement. The Holy Spirit is always in complete agreement with scripture. And then I gave the class some instruction on how our great need to be attentive to the voice of God. For the voice of the Holy Spirit can be quenched so easily, too easily. We can fill our head with noise, even good noise, all the day long and not have time to hear God. You can listen to the best a cappella music and it may be the means that you don't have time to listen for God's voice speaking to you. I speak from experience. Or you may be among those who have to have something piping in their ears all the time just because they can't stand silence. I hope I'm not speaking to anyone here. God's voice is often, I told the class, God's voice is often heard as a still, small voice. And unless we are attentive and wanting to hear it, we may not hear it. And I said, you have an additional assignment for next week. Think about what we've been discussing. And I want you to come to class prepared to share when you have believed the Holy Spirit was talking to you this week, this coming week, and what you did about it. I was really anxious for next Sunday. We did this during the Sunday school hour. One person said, when something mean was done to me, I was thinking of retaliating, but all of a sudden there was a thought came into my mind, be kind one to another, return good for evil. She said, I think that was the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with her? 
So we know that's one way God speaks to us through the Spirit. He puts a thought in our mind. So I did not do that mean thing in turn. Another person shared that what he thought was the Holy Spirit's prompting to do a helpful deed. So he did the deed. I believe that was a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Each of the five or six in the class gave something whereby, excuse me, whereby they heard the Holy Spirit and then they did what they believed they were being instructed to do. If you take nothing else home tonight, practice that. Practice being attentive. We don't worship the Holy Spirit. Well, he's God, but you know, the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. He always speaks of Christ. And he's a minister of the word to us in various things for the kingdom. The last one I saved to share you about, the one that, that was burned into my memory that day. The young lady said that she was walking through the house one day and she came upon a mess that her sibling had made. Probably most of us know what that was like if we grew up in a family of more than one child. And she said, my first impulse was to go tell mom to get on that child's case or sibling's case and clean the mess up. And then a thought came into her mind, do you love your sibling? I know the family well, but I don't know if it was a brother or a sister. I don't need to know that. But she answered silently in her mind, well, yes, of course I love them. And then she said, I seen the voice said, well, why don't you prove that by cleaning it up yourself? So she did. She said she believed that was the Holy Spirit speaking to her. And I asked her, I said, so when you obeyed that prompting, how did you feel? Tracy would not have had to say a word. Her face lit up like a 200 watt light bulb. And this man learned a lesson that day. Is when you know you've heard from the Holy Spirit and you obey that prompting, there touches your heart such a joy and a satisfaction that I wish I had been better as a parent in understanding that when my children were young to instruct them. There's a tremendous joy in knowing I've heard from the creator of the universe and obeyed him and I'm cooperating with him. So I thanked her for that. Parents, I believe that is a powerful lesson whereby our children can be taught the joy of submission. I think I was a typical boy. I don't like washing dishes any better than anybody else. We boys didn't like to have to be the one to go out at night and throw hay in after it was dark because something might get us. You know, we all have, we all have things we face, the joy of submission. The higher goal than simply getting the child to submit to me is wanting to lead them into the joy of hearing the voice of God daily, weekly, hourly, throughout their life and submitting their life to him. Does anything diminish the joy we get when we know we've cooperated with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And we decide, yes, we decide that we want to do what the will of God is. I've jotted a few things down here. I think I'm as red-blooded as any man in this building. I still remember driving down the highway one day and seeing that billboard down the road and I knew it wasn't a good billboard to look at. I still remember, I don't know what state it was in, but I got close, I just turned and looked the other way. You know what happened inside here when I got past that sign? Joy. Joy! Guys, if you have that thing in your pocket and you're tempted to look at something, I hope you resist it. 
I hope you resist it because when you resist it, you haven't lost anything worthwhile. When you resist it, you gain something precious. That is the ability to hear from God and to obey him. That joy that comes to your heart will far outshine any momentary excitement you get from looking at that which is illicit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for helping me not to yield to, to what I know is unhealthy for me to eat. I've had my own journey of that in the last couple of years. God reminds about those things too. Oh God, how I praise you for giving me the idea and the power to return good for evil. I trust I'm speaking to many who've done those things. Hear the voice of God. Remember those verses. The Holy Spirit will bring them back to our mind. And your list, when you do those things, your list of joy and gratitude toward God will grow when you day by day and moment by moment live with an obedient attentiveness to God. Moving beyond knowing I have to obey my parents, my leaders, my, and holy God, it gets down to a choice we make in our hearts, in our minds and in our hearts, and that is to deny self and self's selfish agenda and choose to align my will with the will of God. Proverbs 30, 15, and 16, it talks about the things that there's four things that never say enough. The barren womb, the grave, the fire, I forget what the fourth one is. Those are all things that are out there. But there is something that can reside in here that never says enough either. And that is self, love. It's a path, if we choose to walk down the road in life, it never says, okay, Bob, that's enough now. I've had enough of self-gratification. It always wants more. And that's a sign of anything we're involved with. If we always have to have more. It's a sign then that something is out of balance and is not where it ought to be. Other sins of the flesh, serving self never arrives at satisfaction. It always has to have more and more. In 1970, I went to Poplar Hill School under Northern Lake Gospel Mission. Excuse me. It was 80 miles north-northwest of Red Lake in the bush, a natural setting. It was a school for 50 young native children up to grade eight. And uh, there was an enormous log boom. Logs had been harvested the year before, and they needed to be sawed up that summer. And Mr. Paul Miller and Jay Miller, he was a principal and Jay was a maintenance supervisor. They sat us down after the students flew home for the summer and they said, we have a mountain of work to do this summer. Would you men be willing to work Saturday mornings instead of having all of Saturday off, which had been the normal pattern? And there was eight or 10 of us young men and we had a mind to work and we said, yes, we will. And that was the big and upfront project. We sawed lumber for weeks. New experience for many of us. John King from Iowa ran the saw. I took the stuff off the other side, put it on where it needed to go. One man winched the logs up from the log boom in the lake, positioned them on the carriage to roll onto the saw. Two men took the lumber from where I piled it on skids and took it out and stacked it on piles, stickered it, cut up the buzz, buzzed up the slab wood and took it up to, to feed the cook stove up and put it in the slab wood shed. You get the idea, we're all involved, we all put our shoulders to the work. Sure, we got hands sticky from pine sap, but I learned that first summer that seemed incongruous to me that you just simply take your hand and go like this, and your hands are no longer sticky. <laughs> Try it sometime. And you can still comb your hair. 
you can figure out how that works. But uh, one Monday in early August, we counted the logs that we had left and we did some calculating and we figured if we really worked hard and nothing broke down, we could be done by Friday evening. And we were, we're gonna make that a goal. And Mr. J, J. Miller, supervisor, he said, young men, if you get that goal, you have all of Saturday off. Wow! We go fishing, go out and explore those unexplored lakes with a canoe, and we worked hard. When uh, breakfast was over, we didn't wait till eight o'clock to start. We were down there and got the mill running and started sawing right away. Same at lunchtime. No one was telling us we had to do that. We had a goal we wanted to meet. Tea breaks were taken between boards or logs, depending which side of the saw you worked on. And by Wednesday afternoon, we did some calculating and it looked like we were on target to make our goal by Friday afternoon. Well, that afternoon, Paul Miller came back from his break in the summer, and the first thing he did was check the garden in a quarter mile way back along the river, and the potatoes needed cultivating and hilling. And he was prepared to do it, but he had a degenerative hip situation, and he couldn't do those things. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't maneuver the cultivators, get them mounted on that 48 end, and, and so Jay Miller pulled another man and myself off the sawmill Thursday afternoon to put the cultivators on the tractor and adjust them. The question we now pondered was, are we gonna get done on Friday? Will we have Saturday off? I wrote this up many years ago, this out of print at this point. I wrote, the mind has a terrible propensity to carry on one-sided arguments. You know what I'm talking about? Throwing in a couple pounds of anger and feelings of injustice will make the soil of the mind just right for every kind of evil thought. I still remember the heat in my veins as I contemplated being pulled off a sawmill to work on a tractor. That meant less chance of finishing the logs by Friday. That meant not having Saturday off. That meant not being able to canoe to those unexplored places we had hoped to investigate. Hadn't Mr. J told Mr. Miller what he had promised us? Wasn't it important for Mr. Miller for us to reach our goal? Couldn't the potatoes wait a few more days? Was I submitting? I was doing the work, but there wasn't any joy there. I was not the only one thinking those thoughts. All it took was a few black looks from others and a few barbed words to convince me that I was not alone in how I felt. I was torn between what I wanted to do and what God wanted me to do. Though I was doing the work, my heart and attitude were not right. So on that sunny Thursday afternoon behind the shop, building tightening nuts on the cultivators, with this turmoil in my mind and spirit, God gave me guidance that has stood me well over the years since. Today, I do not remember, and Paul Miller and Jay Miller do not remember either, whether we finished the logs by Friday and whether, or whether we had Saturday off. But this I do well remember. I made a decision that Thursday afternoon that if I were going to err in the attitude of my heart, it would be on the side of being loyal to my authorities rather than the side of rebellion. And by the grace of God, that lesson has blessed me many, many times since to decide that direction in life. And when that decision was made, then, right then, peace returned to this man and joy returned. 
we said it involves a choice. It's a choice. We, we set our affections on things above. We set our affections on what we like, what we enjoy. You read my story sometimes learning to like pizza. I didn't like pizza, but I decided I was going to learn to like it. We can set our affections on spiritual things as well. As we said at the beginning of the message, submission is not welcomed by the carnal mind. Indeed, submitting is an affront to the natural man wanting his own will. And to put the word of joy in front of the submission seems an impossibility to our flesh. I mentioned last night, I'd like to just mention it again. You know, in the Old Testament, there were people who tried to keep the jots and tittles. Not many did it very successfully. I think Simon, uh, who met Jesus as a baby, was the one, a righteous man. Uh, I think there were several other mentioned. But when Jesus came to this earth, he said, it hath been said unto you, but I say unto you. Did the standard go up or down? It went up. What, four different areas. It hath been said, but I say unto you. And what Jesus Christ did, what he did there, he made it, it impossible to follow Christ without having something changed inside here. It's impossible. We can pretend, and I've seen people try to pretend to live a Christian life, and I think one of the most miserable things a person can do is to try to live the Christian life if they're not, if something hasn't changed inside here. And there are those people around. May God help us recognize and, and give them wise counsel. Joyful submission is made possible when the Lord Jesus Christ is received into the heart and given his place, and that man learns to walk in the spirit. We considered a bit earlier that I don't have to if I want to. That is certainly true, but that statement does not incorporate all of what God's children face and experience in the, in the area of submission. We can learn to want to. But there are still times, perhaps many times, when we are asked to submit to something that we think should be done another way. If when I became a child of God and I endeavored to walk in the Spirit, Romans 8, it would be a mistake to conclude that now I'm a child of God, now I'm walking in the Spirit, there's no longer a need for me to submit. You stop and consider all those people that are told to submit there, husbands, wives, children, Employees, ministers, younger and older church members, all instructed to submit. So just because Jesus Christ has taken up residence, don't think we never, we're never faced with a, a need to submit. I think those verses indicate we will all face situations where my own will is crossed, or my own sense of judgment, even sober, well thought out, where I really think my way is a better way, and where I am really not in the mood to do what is asked of me. We will all be faced with the need to submit. Now, I'm not talking, please hear me clearly, I'm not talking about submitting to things that are immoral or unlawful to do. I'm speaking about, are we going to put the brown carpet or uh, black carpet in the church? Uh, I had a, I'll just say a relation. The husband and wife actually fought over which way the toilet paper comes off the roll. This thing, submission, talks, it touches very, very many areas of our life. Between the scenario presenting itself and my response lies this thing called struggle. And you know what it is like, as I do, to bring my will to submit to the will of God. 
Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There in Gethsemane, Jesus was in great agony. He wanted to do his Father's will. Jesus knew what his Father's will was, but the specter of suffering that lay ahead in his cup was, was agonizing for Jesus to behold, so agonizing that he sweated as it were great drops of blood. There is a place we struggle, even when we know what the will of God is, to bring my will in subjection to his. Oh, that we would look to our Lord and his example. And I find it so instructive where Jesus said, Father, is there some other way except I drink this cup? But Father, I want your will to be done. It's instructive to me because the same prayer he says, God, is there some other way? He's saying, but I'll, above all, I want your will to be done. I've written something, something about this thing called struggle, and I've heard with great discomfort when some Christian leaders exalt struggle and just encourage young people, ask, it's good to struggle, it's good to struggle, it's good to struggle. And I would offer some thoughts in the matter. I have no criticism of struggle if the struggle is to know what the will of God is in that situation. We may struggle to understand, Lord, what is your will here? But when we know what the will of God is, do we have any excuse for struggle year or month after month or year after year struggling whether I'm going to submit to will to God or not? When you hear that, what does that say? My wife and I have spoken numbers of times about a person who year after year confesses struggling with what they know they should be doing. The question is not whether, the, whether or to know what the will of God was, but whether they would submit to it. And I will, I will proclaim that I think that is the most miserable way, the most miserable way for a person to live. If you know what the will of God is, then submit, let's submit and do it. Let's try to line our will up with his. There is absolutely no joy in such an existence. And as we said last night, when we struggle and struggle and don't do what we know we're to do, then we open ourselves wide open to deception. Joseph Carlson, born in Minnesota over 100 years ago, used to lead a dance orchestra. I don't know what they look like or what they sound like. But after his conversion, he had a testimony. Now, I don't want to sing a little solo. How many of you know that if you, have, if, if you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, uh, we'll sing that little chorus and I'll read you the three lines in between because I, I don't know the tune right. And then we'll sing the, 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 the first part again. If you want joy, real joy, Your night, he'll turn to day. Your life, he'll make it over anew. If you want joy, that joy is a byproduct of walking hand in hand with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't make ourselves joyful in the context of what we're talking about this evening. We can't, I'm, saying, I'm trying to say, we can't cook up joy. We can put on a facade, 
But the joy we're speaking of is something that comes from the Spirit of God working in our hearts, deep inside. It comes from receiving him as the highest authority in your life. To obey the Lord, especially where my own will is, is willingly submitted, submitted to his will, is the avenue whereby the joy we speak of will come forth. Now, that's about the end of my notes. I went home from the conference this afternoon, and I'm going to be frank. This was a new experience for me. I grew up in Lancaster Conference, and my impression as a boy growing up there, TV was coming and other things, and it seemed to be the conference's experience, a race to the lowest common denominator in Christian expression is what happened in my teenage years. And so I did not have a good idea of conference. When we moved to northern Minnesota in 1992, Brother Leroy Yoder, he had been many years with conservative conference out of Ohio. And he said, we had this discussion one day. He said, Bob, he said, my experience in the early years of conservative conference, that it was a unifying thing that churches would pull together toward a common biblical application. But by the time we had that conversation in 1992, that church, even when we came, was no longer supporting conservative conference because they had joined the ranks of, of throwing things away. See, I usually write out my notes very detailed. And when I get home this afternoon and get cleaned up, I didn't have time to do that. So if what I say, the rest of this service makes any sense to you, then you better thank the Heavenly Father for that. So as I listened to this afternoon to discussing the communion cup and what was the issue right before that? Weddings. Weddings. I was sitting in the back corner there and I was listening and I appreciated the respectfulness with which you men addressed each other and you said you were not all on the same page. New experience for me. Thank you. And I don't know where you're going to come out in some of those things. That's, I'm not here to tell you how, you how you should come out. But I was there, Lord, I didn't really have a good ending in this message. And the Lord impressed two men on my mind. One is gone, one is still living. And I'm going to attempt to tell you the story of the living first. Because as I look back in my 72 years, I see two men that stand out like pillars in their willing to submit in the area of submitting to the brotherhood. And I think that's what we were talking about. And so I don't know if I scratched where you itched up to this point, but I think maybe this was some of the reason why you wanted this subject addressed. I'm learning from it too. I'm just going to call this man my friend. I learned him to know him somewhere between 20 and 30 years ago. He was a bishop. He had very clear ideas of how things should be happening in their conservative Mennonite church. He had some concerns about financial matters and how some things were being handled there. He also taught that in, in practice, he preached that on his own pulpit that we shouldn't be hanging on to our positions. And he submitted his own leadership to the leadership of that church. If they ever felt that he wasn't who they were supposed to be, that he would submit, submit to them. And I don't know all the details, 
But I know there came a place that there was a division in that church, and that, it was not an easy division. And my friend was asked to leave. The bishop of the church was asked to leave. And there were, I think, eight or nine families who, I don't know how all these things tumbled together with feelings and so forth, but they felt what happened was not, was not right. And they went with him and said, why don't, why don't you lead us? And so they started another little church. And I preached that church four times. I think you and I would feel, feel comfortable being part of such a church. But there were some things happened there that one family moved away and another family moved away and some were led to expect that they were going to become part of this certain conference and that wasn't happening and within 10 years everyone except a family or two had moved away including my best one of my best friends who was had been part of the home church and went with this man and so they closed the church down my friend went back to the church that had asked him to leave he submitted themselves to them he was not asked and was not asked he was not asked if he'd share the pulpit I don't think he ever preached in that church maybe he had a topic or something I was there for a short series of meetings and that man told me my friend told me he said I pray for that leader I know the leader well. He said, I know what he's going through. The man does some writing. He would write out a gospel message. He would print it out and he would show it to the ministry. He said, I'm, I would like to share this as a gospel witness. He said, only if you feel good about it. I don't want my name on it, but your leader's names and, and the church's name. And they agreed to do that. He wanted to make his leader the leader successful. And they eventually, well, they did apply and were received back as members. I called him this afternoon and asked if I could tell his story. He's not what you call a successful pastor. But there's something he exemplified that I never want to forget. The spirit of humility to go back and submit himself to that church. And it's not an ungodly church. There are some things there about some things. I don't need to go into details. You know, maybe I'll say, you know, uh, having a fundraiser for the school. He had some reservations about that. He had some reservations about laying a birthly treasure and there's some very wealthy people in that church that didn't appreciate those kind of admonitions earlier. And, and so my friend is going back there and he's continued to believe and practice, but he is very much in support and praying for his leaders there. That is a picture of submission I don't want to forget. The other one, I'll say his name, he is dead and gone. His name was Joseph Ball and from Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Does anyone know who Joseph Ball is? Isn't that amazing, only four hours away? He was a minister at my wife's home church. When I learned to know my wife, he had been let out to pasture, and that is not an inaccurate description. The church wanted newer, more dynamic things. Joe Ball, 
He preached with deep feeling and many times he would shed tears as he preached. And they weren't comfortable with tears and they, for whatever reason, they put him out to pasture. We chose him to be our, to preach our wedding message. I'm glad we did. I'm not exactly sure how I came party to this story. I tried looking up this afternoon. I am pretty clutchy looking stuff up, but I don't know what year Mannheim Christian Day School began. Yes, Joe told me this, because I asked him about it. I didn't know that I wanted to know some more details. And in their district of six or seven churches, there were those who really wanted to start a Christian day school rather than sending children to public school. There were a lot of, yes, let's do this. There was some like Joe who said, there are some cautions they would have. You know, there are some things that we need to consider about that as well. And we came down to the decision time. Joe voted no. The overwhelming majority of the ministry the bishop voted yes. And so the first day of construction was planned. Joe showed up with his hammer and nail bag that morning. And one of the men said, I certainly didn't expect to see you here. He said, this was the church's decision. I'm going to support the work of the church. We could go around and we could find out what stands out to you in the life, in your church life and church experience. But those two men, they're pretty high in this poor man's mind because they demonstrate something of humility and a submission to a local body that I find so encouraging to me. In closing, if you do not have that joy in your heart and the soul and soul in submitting to do the will of God, and I think there's a basic question that needs to be asked. Have I indeed surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I aligned, am I aligning my will with his? Because there will never be any joy of which we speak of this evening until my will wants to do the Father's will. And when that is united, there's nothing can separate us from the love of God. I trust many of you know what I'm speaking about and have that kind of joy in your heart. And if you don't know, by the grace of God, we can know. May God bless you.